everybody welcome. Um, we'll let everybody else filter in as we go. And yeah, tonight um, we're welcoming Aaron Wren. And uh, I'll do a little bigger introduction of him in just a moment, but um, I'll introduce myself. I'm Chad Steenweck. If you have not been a part of these Abide meetings, um, I'm the chair of the steering committee for the Abide project. And uh, yeah, I have had the delight to serve with, with many of you over the last couple of years as we have been yeah, working uh, in the CRC and just watching the Lord do some incredible things. Um, and yeah, and he's doing that through the faithfulness of many uh, folks like you. And so we're thankful for that. And God has God has uh, shown his face upon us. Um, what, what I would like to do is I would like to open with prayer. And then I'm going to introduce Aaron. But um, yeah, certainly is the day the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you. Well, Lord, as we uh, began this lecture series a couple of years ago, and Lord, here we stand today, and Lord, we thank you that you have renewed hope in the in, in within our denomination. Lord, you have uh, inspired a a love for the gospel, and Lord, you have moved um, even a, a greater appreciation and and a commitment to uh, the the confessional understanding of of your word. And we thank you for the way we have seen that. Um, just blossoming in so many different places and and the connections that you have made between many of us and and far beyond as well too. So Lord, we thank you for this opportunity for us to gather in this evening. And Lord, we just pray your blessing upon this time together. We thank you that Aaron Wren is here with us. And Lord, we pray your blessing upon him as as we learn from him, as we interact with him. And Lord, we pray that this would all be for Christ and his kingdom. Oh Lord, build your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, um, Aaron, Ren. Um, Aaron is a writer. Aaron is a consultant. Um, maybe you've seen him with the American Reformer. I know recently in some of our channels even, um, like on the Returning Church page on Facebook, some of Aaron's articles have been shared. And some I know someone shared um, Aaron's new book, which is hot off the press, right, Aaron? Yes, it is. I've got a copy too. <laughs> Great. So um, life in the negative world, confronting challenges in an anti-Christian culture. And it... it isn't that exactly what we are facing? Um, in a, hey, got a couple more of them out there. Great. Um, the rest of you should have one as well, too. So if you can't hold it up today, hopefully by the next time you can hold up your copy of Aaron's book here. No, but this is exactly what we're facing in the Christian Reformed Church. And as as the church and culture intersect with one another, and, and I have found Aaron to be um, a, a really insightful commentator on, on all of those issues as, as culture and the church intersect together, and especially as those who, who are conservative Orthodox Christians, how can we flourish in the 21st century? Um, so oftentimes, those who are from a more conservative, traditional background, we thought, well, that's just from the olden days. But when we realize we have the gospel of life, we have the word of life, I mean, how could we not flourish in the 21st century? But that's that's some of the work that Aaron has been doing and so we're, we're glad to welcome him. So um, yeah, besides his book, you can find more about Aaron at his website, um, AaronWren.com. We'll put that in the chat here too. So you guys can have connections to that and his book as well too. But um, Aaron, we met about three years ago, I think. 
Yeah. I was looking back through emails. It seemed like it was 2021 or so, but we met in a, in a boardroom downtown Grand Rapids and it was several people that were brought together kind of from lots of different corners to discuss, you know, the, the Christian Reformed Church and Calvin University and, and all of these sorts of things together. And, and I know, um, Aaron, you are not from the Christian Reformed Church, but I know you've intersected with a Christian Reformed Church, and I know you've kind of kept your eye on us a little bit. Uh, I believe Paul Vanderclay had you on his show at one point in time. Or was that? Uh, or was he's he been on my show, show but he I have on not your yet show. been on his show. But he's mentioned me a few times. Paul and I, Paul and I know each other. He's been on my podcast a couple of times. Okay, great. So, so that you know that that way you've kind of been introduced to the Christian Reformed Church a little bit, and and I know even in some of those conversations, there's been conversation about the Abide Project or about things that are happening in the Christian Reformed Church here. But um, you know, we're at the, we're at the position now where we've had two consecutive synods that have reaffirmed um, overwhelmingly an Orthodox position on human sexuality and marriage, and you know, it, it feels as though the Christian Reformed Church is sort of at this at this precipice right now. Kind of the fog seems to be clearing a little bit, and and we're ready to to see how the CRC can flourish in the 21st century. So, um, so welcome into this circle, Aaron. We're really glad that you're here. We're eager to learn from you. So, Aaron is going to speak for you know 20, 25, maybe 30 minutes, whatever, um, however long he goes, and then we are going to have some time to interact with him. And so um, just start thinking of questions as he is talking, um, just understanding of, of, of his work, of the work of the church in this 21st century here. But Aaron, I'm going to turn the floor to you and uh, all yours. We're glad you're here. Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit uh, about my model uh, of the world for those of you who haven't heard it. Then I'll talk a little bit about what's kind of uh, going on, uh, kind of. Uh, in the broader sort of Christian space nationally. And then maybe I'll, I'll give a little bit of an idea about how to respond, and, but not too much because I, I thought I would try to like save a lot of time to answer questions as much as possible. Um, so um, basically, you know, America never had a state church like we had in Europe, but we did sort of have a sort of softly institutionalized generic Protestantism as our default national religion for most of our history. If you go back to the 1950s, about half of all adults attended church every week. That was the high watermark of church attendance in America. Uh, we had prayer and Bible reading in our public schools. Uh, we were adding in God we trust to our money. Uh, there was a lot going on. You know, it was, it was a society where Christianity was held in honor wasn't always a society that lived by Christian uh, precepts by any means, but it was certainly Christianity was held in honor. Then in the 1960s, that started to go into decline. Uh, Christianity status in society began to erode, and Christianity itself went into decline in terms of church attendance, personal adherence, and uh, we started to see the Christian moral system called into question. And I divide this period of decline between 1964 and the present into three phases or worlds that I call the positive world, the neutral world, and the negative world. The positive world is from 1964 to 1994. And I want to be clear that this is a period of time of decline for Christianity. All is not well for Christianity in America at this time. Nevertheless, Christianity was still basically viewed positively. To be known as a good church-going man makes you seem like an upstanding member of society. 
Christian moral norms are still the moral norms uh, of America at large. And if you violate them, you can get in big trouble. Around 1994, we hit a tipping point and entered what I call the neutral world, which lasted from 1994 to 2014. Christianity is no longer seen positively, but it's not really seen negatively yet either. It's just one more lifestyle choice among many in a sort of pluralistic public square. And Christian moral norms sort of have a you know residual effect in society. Then in 2014, we had a second tipping point and enter what I call the negative world, where for the first time in the 400-year history of America, official elite culture now views Christianity negatively or certainly skeptically. I think all throughout our history, there were many people uh, that were not devout, uh, who were maybe personally didn't think Christianity was uh, really uh, true. Many of our founding fathers were sort of deists, you know, some of them, they weren't exactly devout, but they held Christianity publicly in honor. And today, there's no more need to pretend. People can just be negative towards it. Uh, being known as a Bible-believing Christian does not help you land a job at Goldman Sachs or Google. Quite the opposite, in fact. And Christian moral, moral norms are now expressly repudiated by society at large and indeed are in some respects seen as the leading threat to the new public moral order. Now, again, I call it the negative world, but maybe again, it would be more accurate to say suspicious than negative. Merely identifying as a Christian uh, may get people to look at you a little funny, but it won't necessarily get you in trouble so long as the contents of your Christianity do not conflict with today's secular public morality and ideologies. So uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's the Secretary of Transportation, says he's an Episcopalian. Nobody's giving him a hard time over that. Uh, Raf, Reverend Raphael Warnock is in the U.S. Senate. He's not getting a hard time over the hat. Um, and so I think this situation in which Christian identification or identity is accepted, but it must conform to uh, sort of uh, secular morality puts a sort of social pressure on people to find ways to bring their beliefs into conformance um, with that system. And so... Um, why did I pick those dates? There's nothing magical about those dates. 64 was incredibly arbitrary. I, I just dated it to the Kennedy assassination. I don't think that had anything to do uh, with, with it, but you know that seemed like when things started to go crazy in American society. Uh, 1994, I could have picked 1989 uh, because that was the year that um, uh, the Soviet Union sort of collapsed, the Berlin Wall fell. I really think the end of the Cold War was um, an important development. I mean, the reason we were adding in God we trust to our money and under God to the pledge in the 1950s was the Cold War. You know, the Cold War played a huge role in so much of what we did in this country. And with communism being, you know, an avowedly atheist system, very materialist, very materialist in a philosophical sense, um, Christianity was really part of the West's moral battle against the Soviet Union. And so as long as the Cold War was ongoing, um, uh, the, um, you know, there was like, well, you know, you can't really get rid of Christianity. 
after the after the Soviet Union collapses, that frees up America to essentially uh, unbundle Christianity from the rest of what it meant to be sort of a a liberal democratic Western society. And uh, I was on the uh, Ali Beth Stuckey podcast the other week, and she said, "Yeah, you know, when when the Soviet Union collapsed, we thought that we won. You know, we Christians had won, and what you know didn't realize that what that meant was, you know." Now society was going to start looking at Christianity in a very different way. But the reason I picked 1994, that was the Gingrich Revolution and really arguably the high watermark of the religious rights influence in America. It was also the year where Rudy Giuliani became mayor of New York and cities started to see this incredible comeback. And that created a completely new demographic force in America of this sort of educated, affluent younger skewing uh, urban progressive. Uh, of course, I had a huge influence on the church uh, as well. 2014, I think, is a little clearer because, you know, the Obergefell decision was in 2015. 2014 was the date that um, Matt Iglesias uh, says the Great Awakening uh, occurred. 2013 is when NYU professor Jonathan Haidt said things started to go crazy on campus. So those were some of the things that were sort of going on in society. Um, we can talk more about some of the things going on, as you like. Um, in my book and in the articles it was based on, I also then analyzed the evangelical uh, world. And I sort of use a sociological definition of evangelicalism, which is based on social science surveys, where you basically, if you're a Protestant in the United States, you get put into one of three buckets. You either, you're either mainline, you're black Protestant, or you're evangelical. And it's not based on your personal beliefs. It's based on the kind of flavor of church that you attend or denomination. I believe the CRC is classified as evangelical, although I think it's quite, you know, an odd fit for, you know, what we think of as like, uh, you know, an evangelical Christian. But I do look at that, you know, kind of broader evangelical base and, come up with kind of three strategies they developed over the years. Uh, one being the culture war from the positive world originated in the 1970s, the religious right that we know, Falwell, Pat Robertson, those folks. A second, seeker sensitivity, pioneered by people like Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church in suburban Chicago, Rick Warren at Saddleback Church. This is really the, the non-denominational suburban megachurch that kind of we all know that in many ways is evangelical mainstream. And then the third was cultural engagement, which you can think of in a couple different ways. You can think of it as a secret sensitivity for the cities. Uh, these churches emerged, uh, people, things like Tim Keller's Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York uh, came to the fore as cities came back. Um, it's essentially urban and college down Christianity. The other thing is they're sort of the opposite of the culture war. They don't want to fight with people. They want to talk with people. They want to have a seat at the table. Uh, they want to be, as people say, winsomely articulate uh, the gospel. And so all these groups were out there and they were sort of doing their thing. And as we entered the negative world, uh, what we saw is there were no strategies that really emerged in order to um, address, you know, the kind of the new challenges of this negative world environment. And the only thing that I've seen, you know, to date uh, that really, um, you know, tried to put something forth was Rod Dreher's Benedict option. 
And evangelicals basically rejected the Benedict option. Uh, I think partially that's because, you know, there's too much. He's, he's Eastern Orthodox and formerly Catholic. He doesn't know the first thing about evangelicalisms or Protestant sensibilities. His use of monasteries and monastic imagery was not going to resonate with, with that. Um, and there were some other, you know, issues that people had. But I think to a great extent at that time, people were still in denial. They didn't want to admit that we lived in a new world. And uh, so uh, I think now people are more amenable to that. And uh, he's saying his book is making something of a comeback uh, in, in, the, in this era. But what did happen, and I'm telling you this because I think it'll explain some of what you see, is that these existing kind of groups and, and approaches from evangelicalism began to deform and come into conflict one with another. And in particular, the cultural uh, culture warriors sort of doubled down. Their, their response is basically being, being like, we should redouble our efforts. And so this time we're going to take the gloves off. So this is the group that was really hardcore for Donald Trump. Um, certainly not all the Trump voters fall in this category, but some of them do, a uh, number of them do. And, um, you know, I think, again, the deformation you would see here is if you went back to the Clinton era and the Lewinsky scandal, they would have said, you know, character is paramount in, in a president or political leader. Someone who does not have character is simply disqualified. No more questions need be asked. And of course, they've abandoned that when it comes to Trump. And now it's much more Machiavellian, uh, you might say. I think they very much take that approach. Still very pugilistic, however. Uh, then you've got the cultural engagers, the urban uh, uh, people. They have really been keen to put daylight between themselves and anybody who votes for Trump. And so uh, what, what this group has done is a couple of things. They're, they're becoming much more tightly synchronized uh, with the culture. They're less engaging. They're more reflecting. Although I would say a lot of that is more rhetorical than theological. They haven't necessarily abandon their theological distinctives, but they have different emphases. So, um, uh, for example, they're very interested in talking about uh, racism. These are, the, these are the people who really went woke, uh, for example. They would much rather talk about racism than abortion. They want to talk about issues that are popular and emphasize the, th the things that are popular and de-emphasize the things that are unpopular in secular society. And these people have some of them have also declared their own culture war, but their culture war is against the culture warriors and the people who voted for Trump. And so um, so you see there are a lot of these people, I shouldn't say a lot of them, there actually aren't that many of them. And they're not all cultural engagers, but they are you know, very publicly platformed people who now spend a lot of their time publicly attacking other other kind of conservative Christians. David French, Russell Moore, Tim Alberta at the Atlantic. Um, you know, there are a bunch of them. Uh, your own your own Kristen Dumay would probably fall into that category. Um, and of course, the, the culture war people are punching right back because that's what they love to do. So you've got this big fracas. And so I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the debates we see over Christian nationalism uh, result from this. And I think also all the hand-wringing about Christian nationalism shows the way in which secular society now wants to view 
evangelicals as a threat, maybe in the way they would have previously cited Islam or something like that. This is the new threat to our democracy. So that's kind of part of uh, what's going on. And, um, you know, I would say you even see part of this in uh, the He Gets Us ads. Now, I actually, uh, after last year's Super Bowl, they had two years in the two, they had two ads in the 2023 Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, a lot, they're, they're, they get a lot of flack from all quarters, left, right. You know, a lot of people criticized them, la you know, last year. I sort of provisionally defended them. I thought their ads were decent and were getting at something important, which is that in a society that's in this negative world, you got to do pre-evangelism. You can't assume people even know anything about Jesus or that they care <laughs> to care to know anything about Jesus. It's not like the old Billy Graham crusades where he could assume the people in his audience basically knew the gospel to some extent, or at least knew the biblical categories and the stories and the characters. And he could just preach the gospel at them. Well, now people don't know anything at all. And if you get the book, which I hope you do, you'll also see that I mentioned the He Gets Us campaign uh, positively in the book. Well, this year, uh, I would not mention it uh, positively. I mean, I think if you if you watch the ads last year, they tried to be scrupulously sort of nonpartisan, if you will, whereas this year they very much were um, what I would say of the cultural engagers. They were heavily synchronized with sort of official kind of progressive culture. And then they, they even had to work in there a critique of um, abortion protesters. Uh, one of the frames in their ads, you know, people protesting the abortion clinic are the bad guys. Very much aligned with, again, what I'm talking about. So I think this sort of thing, this motif is something we're going to see a lot of. Um, kind of the, the rank and file is mostly, I would say, aligned with culture war, you know, but the people with high degrees of influence, platform access and money tend to be aligned with kind of the, the cultural engagers. And so that's about a, the first quarter of my book is sort of the, the, this analysis of the situation that you were, were in. The last three quarters of it are, um, I would say, kind of like, how should we live in this negative world? And I give a set of starter ideas across three domains, which are the personal, how we should live as individuals and families, the institutional, particularly how our churches, ministries, colleges, even businesses, how should we be thinking? And then missional, how do we carry out the Great Commission? How should we engage culturally, politically, socially? And there's a lot in there I won't go through, but one thing I will highlight, and I'm highlighting it because I think the CRC is well-positioned here, which is, I argue that we need to shift much more away from strategies of relevance and transformation towards being a counterculture. And uh, Tim Keller, in his book on church planning, Center Church, did some analysis. It's sort of his take on the H. Richard Niebuhr Christ and Culture Framework, where he kind of came up with four ways of doing church, which he called um, relevance, transformation, counterculture, and two kingdoms. Uh, relevance, he would put mainline Protestants in relevance, and he also put seeker sensitives in relevance. He didn't directly address cultural engagement, um, but I would put cultural engagement primarily in the relevance category. Different audience, but it's trying to be relevant, although sometimes with transformationalist aspirations. Um, the culture war he would put into the 
transformation bucket because they want to use political power to transform the country to be more aligned with God's laws. I think it's fair to say. Uh, so that's the majority of what people are doing. Counterculture would be something like Anabaptist sects, like the Amish, who emphasize uh, our citizenship in heaven. You know, we're exiles. Uh, you know, it was uh, that that would be the Christ against culture model from Niebuhr, if you're familiar with that. And um, and then the two kingdoms I want to really go into is more like the Lutherans. We could call them the Lutherans. And um, so I think there needs to be a shift in emphasis, less trying to be relevant, less trying to transform the world, more, not abandoning that completely, but more being a counterculture. Because when you shift from being a moral majority to being a moral minority, you need to start acting like a minority. And minorities have always needed to steward their own community strength, their own identity in ways that the majority culture did not because the mainstream institutions of society, you know, operate in conformance with the majority culture. And Protestant Americans, because we were the majority for such a long time, got used to the, you know, basically mainstream institutions like public schools reinforcing our values and being sort of our institutions. Well, now we can't do that as much anymore. And so we need to create our own infrastructure, our own ecosystem, our own institutions, our own practices that demarcate and sustain and transmit our values in our community life. And in the book, the example I give are early 20th century uh, Catholics who are essentially in an anti-Catholic country. And they're like, if we wanna be faithful Catholics in America, we have to create our own schools, create our own colleges, create our own fraternal societies, et cetera. And so where I think the CRC uh, is at an advantage is that the CRC has always, I think, had um, a lot of that already. You know, you've got schools, you've got colleges, you've got seminaries, you've got other institutions, you've got a very strong culture uh, that's, you know, very rooted in sort of... Um, you know, a certain segment of the sort of Dutch American community. And I think a lot of people want to view that as bad. It's too too much of a, you know, it's a clique. It's an ethnic mafia. We need to have more outreach. We need to get more people in the door. Maybe there's some of that that's true, but there's a lot of it that's a source of strength. And uh, you definitely don't want to give up all of the things that make you distinct. Um and so I think that the idea that there's very low, kind of low barriers, low differentiation between you and the world, that's a very relevant strategy. Whereas I think um, counterculture would say, you know, uh, the church is, it really is a distinct sort of community. And, and, you know, I'm not a theologian or a pastor. I, I should have said that. I always emphasize that I'm not, you know, but when I read the New Testament, uh, I see like in Paul, especially the letters of Paul, he's not especially concerned about what's going on out in the world. Most of what he's concerned about is what's going on in the church and what's going on in, in people's lives. And so in the idea is of the, of the church as a new kind of community that has been inaugurated. And he's very, very keen to ensure that it lives in accordance with a certain set of values. And so I think that's to me, is an emphasis we need to have. And I think the, I think the strong culture in the institutions of the CRC is actually a strength 
uh, in in this environment because you have a lot of what other people have to build. And so I think with that, I will stop talking and we can uh, I can take questions, maybe address things, whatever might be on your mind. Great. Hey, thank you, Aaron. Yeah, and please, if you have questions, anybody, throw them in the chat here. Um, Aaron, thank you. I mean, that that's fascinating. I hope that it whets people's appetite to to dig into the book. You know, I'm I'm going to start out with a quick question here. Maybe it's not quick, but you know, just on some of the last things you've said about, um, you know, the CRCNA kind of having this countercultural, I guess, infrastructure, so to speak. Um, you know, or, or we got something built up for that. You know, it, it's kind of interesting because we do, you know, we do have, you know, historically we've been very Christian school minded, you know, so our churches have been encouraged over the course of our history to to set up Christian schools. Now, we haven't set up parochial schools. We've set up um, parent run schools. So but but they're really kissing cousins right to the church here. Um, so we, we do have that. But but we also have this other, you know, Kyperian streak within us, too, where you know, we're, we're, we're talking about being transformers of culture, you know, and I've seen that in my own context here where, where we have this battle kind of between those two things and they kind of push, you're training students, you're, you're, you're raising them up to be these transformationalists. Um, they kind of go out into the world trying to, I mean, the, the goal is to, to bring Christ to the world. Um, and then they don't come back into the institutions that we've set up because they're out there in the world, transforming the world. So just kind of an interesting dynamic between the the two. Um, I mean, I, I, how much have you intersect? Have you intersected much at all with like kind of the, the transformationalist movement yeah. of this in the CRC, or or not too much? Not in not in the CRC specifically. I can tell you this in in my reading of uh, certainly church in say New York City. I lived in New York City for five years. I think that the transformationalist agenda that I've seen has sort of been fool's gold. And what has happened is that the culture has done more transforming of the church than the church has done of the culture. Um, and I think, um, you know, that that is an issue, I think, um, that you have to face uh, when you do that. Now, having said that, I mean, again, I, I don't suggest that we abandon ability to transform things. If you if you acquire a position of authority that allows you to transform things in some way, you could do that. So if, you know, you are a, a Christian who got, gets elected the governor of a state, you have authority that you can lawfully use. Uh, and, you know, you have to be wise about how you deploy that. Uh, you know, I think one of the problems with the culture war approach is that the public does not support the culture war agenda. The mm. things that they want are unpopular today. And so you do have to be wise um, about what to do. Um, you know, if you started a business, you could you could operate that business in accordance with many principles. You could be charitable. You can run ministries, um, you know, that that serve the homeless or drug addicts or anything. I think there's a whole host of outward facing things we can do. Um, but, um, you know, if you're not part of a strong countercultural church, you're probably not going to be transforming anything. What's probably going to happen is you're the one that's going to be transformed. Um, and, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, making them. Um, 
I, I think there's like a real naivete about how difficult it is to affect any form of cultural transformation or any sort of transformation. I mean, like, you know, like I, I like, I mean, I did a lot of work in urban policy and I got so many, I, I think I'm so smart. I think I know what the cities ought to be doing. I think I know what these governments should be doing. They should do this and that and the other thing. And then, okay, all of a sudden, you know, you've you got a guy at church, you know, who's, uh, you know, there's like this one guy I, I knew when I was in Rhode Island and he had epilepsy and he couldn't work and he had serious anger problems and like, you know, I'm like, okay, like now, okay, can you transform this guy's life? Yeah, see if you can make a difference in one person's life. That's very hard. Even being a, affecting a positive transformation or even being a positive influence in one person's life is extraordinarily difficult. And I, I think this idea that we're going to go out and transform the world is very naive in many respects. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's been, it is a task, right? I mean, yeah. And I think we've we've seen that effect. I mean, the world. I think we've seen some resonation in the chat here already with what you said there too. That yeah, it's exactly that. It's exactly that the world ends up transforming the church more than the church transforms the world. Um, I got a couple specific questions here, and um, I'm kind of trying to sort through them as we're talking here. But um, here's one from Laura. Um, how would you advise helping moderates, those who want to sort of fit in, be more amenable to the culture, to embrace a more antithetical relationship to the culture? So, so how would you encourage the? So you got those folks in the middle, right, who are just sort of waffling back and forth. But how do you, how do you get them to sort of move toward the resisting of the cultural trends and as it says here, look more weird, you know, because we mm -hmm. do, right? We do look weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, first, I'm going to make a film recommendation. Yeah, I love it. Go back to, I'm going to go back to the last point. If you want to see a great film about uh, transformation, um, it's an art film. I'll admit it. It's in a foreign language film. It's called Akiru, I-K- I-K-I-R-U, Akiru, however you would spell that. It's uh, a Japanese word that means to live. It's by Akira Kurosawa. And it's about a guy who finds out he has terminal stomach cancer and what he does with the time that he has remaining in life. I see somebody put in a link to it, so that's good. Uh, Akira, uh, I mean, uh, Kurosawa is one of the great um, humanist filmmakers uh, of all time. I think moderates, here's what I'd say about, you know, moderates are um, the, um, to me, the great, um, the, the, the way you characterize the moderate is the moderate are people who are saying, what would the neighbors think? I think that's the thing that's always going through like the back of their mind. And I'm not sure how to influence something like that because they're responding to status signals in society. And that's what I mean, like people are, we are sort of hardwired to pursue high status. We want to see our status improve. And so we're very, very attuned. And this isn't even like, a, I'm not even saying this is cynical. This is like subconscious. We understand, like when we're in high school, we see what the cool kids are wearing right. and we want to wear that. like. You know, and it is, you know, that is that is how we're programmed. So it's very difficult to overcome that. One thing I would say 
is at least don't push them away with boorish, low-class behaviors that they really find obnoxious, which is what I think the culture war people do a lot of. I, I see people constantly online kind of bomb throwing and acting in ways that really turn people off. It turns a lot of people off. You know, that's that's um, you know, that's sort of Donald Trump as well. There's just a lot of people who just look at that guy and think he has no class. And so that's why many sort of suburbanites don't want to vote for Trump. It's like, you know, it's like this is like local. So you don't need to let's not we want to act like serious people. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. what I always try to do. Obviously, look, I want people to say, I may not agree with this guy, but like this is a serious person. This is the kind of person that you can invite onto your Zoom session. He's not going to embarrass you. You know, I, I take I take it seriously, you know, when like, for example, um, I I managed to get Senator Marco Rubio on my podcast, wow. which basically his staff just said yes, right? He didn't, I don't know him. You know, his staff told him to do it. Okay. And so if I go out there and say something stupid tomorrow, like I'm going to make them look like idiots, you know? And so I think there is a sense in which we have to, you know, I, you know, we do have to be concerned with the way, you know, how the way that we conduct ourselves. I mean, I think that like, doesn't like Paul say something about like an elder or somebody has to have a good reputation in the world or something like that. And there is a sense that like, if if you're going to be hated like Paul, you know, he wanted to be hated for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons. And I think too often we're uh, we're disliked for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard in terms of how we comport ourselves. Now, what I would say is I have not noticed any of that negative behavior in the CRC. Mm -hmm. uh, so I feel very good about the CRC. Uh, with regards to that. But it is something that like, I think you if you can't necessarily win them to your side, you can at least avoid alienating them in that way. Um, but then again, you know, it's sort of like, it's sort of like with the world. You also got to say, do I want to let, do I want to say, well, I don't want to turn them off. So I'll, I'll kind of shade things over here a little bit. I think it's sort of like trying to get the world to kind of like you. You got to be careful not to try too hard to make them like you. Right. That's why I say for me, I think somewhat, I'm actually gonna be writing a little bit about this is, you know, it should be a ways that like, this is who we are as people, regardless of how it affects other, others, you know, um, you know, this is how we want to conduct ourselves and we aspire to conduct ourselves because that's what we want and who we are more than because you're trying to appeal to them. You know, I think so often you see this around, I think, around all of evangelicalism. And that, yeah, I will include uh, the CRC in that. And I know I, I liked what you said, too, that the, the CRC is sort of an odd fit into that world. Right. Um, we we have we have some evangelicalism in us. Right. But we're also a confessionally reformed denomination. And so it right. doesn't it doesn't fit exactly. But we would not want to put ourselves in line with the mainline churches either. I mean, we, we're, we we don't want to be there. And I think maybe that's kind of true of the CRC in a lot of ways. We we don't like to be categorized. We kind of like to be our own thing in the middle of all of those, of, of all of that. Yeah, because um, yeah, I, I, but but a lot of people will, will talk about us, those who are on the conservative end of the CRC and say, 
Yeah, they're just a bunch of Trump guys. I mean, they, they, they throw that accusation at us because that has become sort of the, the moniker for evangelicalism, right? You know, and, and so I, I don't, I have no idea how many people on this Zoom call or who will watch this later have voted for Trump or will vote for Trump. I don't care who votes for Trump, right? right? I mean, that's their, that's their business. Um, so, so I think that's, that's some of the, the, the struggle that we, we have in the Christian Reformed Church. You know, we're not jumping into that evangelical camp, you know, in terms of um, being identified by that political persuasion so much. And yeah, we're, ha- yeah, but we're still having those reactions kind of within our own denomination. Um, yeah. Now, one thing I would say that I think I would actually, uh, I think you should want to be mainline. Not hmm. in the theological sense of where they are today, but you. you know, America feels keenly the loss of sort of the mainline tradition in America. The collapse of the mainline denominations, the collapse of the old Protestant establishment, is undoubtedly a big part of what is ailing our country. Hmm. And so we need people who can come in and like build and sustain institutions for the long term. You know, uh, when we moved back from New York to, to Indianapolis, we spent about, you know, a year and a half. We lived downtown. We spent about a year and a half attending a PCUSA church. And it was, you know, I would say it was an Orthodox church. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, the a lot of big shot politicians attended there and stuff like that. And like it was sort of morally shaping a leadership culture uh, for the for, for the city and the state. They're celebrating this year the 100th anniversary of their recreation ministry, uh, it, which is uh, they were the first rec- first essentially the first recreation ministry in the country, hmm. and it's now 100 years old, and has just been you know they've been faithfully at their location at 34th and Central in the inner city of Indianapolis for 100 years, and like evangelical churches can't seem to outlast their founding pastor, many of them. And they're like, you know, they're, they're like institutions in, in important ways in, in people's lives and society. I think we should aspire to be that. Uh, I think, you know, I've always said that, you know, this idea that mainline is a dirty word for a lot of people who've never set foot in a mainline church and literally are completely ignorant of the reality of the mainline tradition. All they see is the viral video of the female Lutheran pastor giving the sparkle creed or something like that. And they think that's what mainline Protestantism is. Most mainline Protestantism is like a bunch of old ladies. <laughs> you know, it's 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 actually ultra conservative uh, in a sense. It's like so conservative, it's very, you know, bore your mind, bore your, bore you to tears. But um, anyhow, that's it's kind of my thing is like, you know, why can't we replace the role that they had in society at some point? Anyway, we take more questions here. Yeah, good. Yeah. Um, let me look at some of these questions. So we got um, somebody was saying saying here, uh, they appreciated your um, your reference to Dreyer. Um, they recommend Babel, uh, Babylon's Furnace. I've never seen that one as an intro. But But how do we live not by lies when even... Now language is controlled by the progressive agenda. Now that's a question from Doug. I don't know if that Doug, you want you need any more clarification on that, or if you want, if you have any more 
desire for clarification, Aaron, we can pull Doug in too. Um, nope, uh, that's it. You got it. Okay, good. Well, I think we need to be clear in our own language, right? And, um, you know, I think that's, that is something. And uh, again, one of the things I say in the book is, you know, what the, is, you know, not only do we have to like catechize our children into the confessions and, you know, go, you know, the Heidelberg confession and all that, we actually have to have, you know, sort of um, what I call counter catechesis. We have to actually have to go through, okay, here's what we don't believe. Here's what the world things and here's why we don't believe that. And, you know, sort of like how Jews have to tell their kids what Christmas is and why they don't celebrate it at some point. And if you look at some of the old, you know, confessions and councils, they often had a, a you know, kind of a, a set of affirmations and a set of anathemas. It's like, here's what we believe and here's what we reject. And I think the canons of Dort is actually like that. There's like, here's what we affirm. Here's what we reject. And so I think we're going to have to be clear on what we reject. And part of what it, we reject is going to be defining like, this is what it is. This is the go. These are the words. This is why we don't believe that. Here's what we believe instead. And so I think we are going to have to take that on, but we are also going to have to have clarity in our own language. And again, I think certainly in the Protestant world, we haven't had to just have, we haven't always had to have great distinct distinction between uh, kind of our culture and mainstream culture, because they sort of were very overlapping in a lot of ways. And now we do. Now we're going to have to be much more distinct for the world. And part of that means drawing, you know, drawing distinctions between their words and their meanings and, and ours. But I agree that their control of language is quite formidable. And, uh, you know, um, I, I think it was the, uh, the, socio the sociologist James Davison Hunter talking about culture power as the power to name things. And it, it certainly is. I'm just going to put a side plug in here. There was an article that was written for the Abide Project. But actually, one of those who's on the call with us, Laura Copley, uh, it was um, same words, different dictionary. And just, you know, all right. the, the words that we use together, they were just, we're reading from different dictionaries on those words. And it's, it's really helpful to think about. One of the things, you know, they're, related... they're often quite, um, quite hesitant to define what they actually mean. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, you know, the, I mean, I see people on Twitter all the time that, you know, they'll be talking, some some evangelicals talking on and on about, about racism. And somebody say, what's your definition of racism? Mm. No, they won't give you one. They never want to give you a definition of some of their terms because that would give the game away. It would. I mean, yeah, the nebulousness is there. Is there right. Time. It's like part of it. It's like, it's kind of a float, we call a floating signifier. And look go. at that floating signifier. It lets other people kind of project their own meanings onto these things. And then you accept their terminology because you think it means what you think, but that's not what's going to happen. The trouble is we fall for that. We we take that bait so quickly. Yeah. In response. So a related question to that. So what would you say the difference between your vision of living in the negative world and Rod Dreher's Benedict option, if any? I mean, so how would you differentiate between those two? Well, um, that's a good question. Um, you could you could think of my book as a Protestant version of the Benedict Option. Okay. Um, what I would say is, um, Rod is far more pessimistic and gloomy. 
than I am. He he's really a doomer, um, which uh, I am not. Uh, I am not someone who thinks that it's destined to just be totally awful. He seems to think Christianity is is like it's inevitable that it's going to go extinct in America, basically, except for a few people here and there. You know, he's also, and you know, he's, you know, if you read him, I mean, he's very, uh, he shares intimate details of his life, so it's, you know, you know what's going on. He's very um, alienated from, you know, uh, America, from a lot of things. You know, it's interesting. Some of these Eastern Orthodox people, kind of converts, like his buddy Paul Kingsnorth. You know, both both of them they expatriated, so they don't live in the, even live in the country where they grew up. Uh, they have adopted a foreign religion. Basically, it's essentially a foreign religion. Mm -hmm. It's a non-Western religion. And, you know, Kings North lives in like rural Ireland somewhere or something like mm -hmm. that. So there is a sense in which they're, they're very deeply alienated from contemporary America. And I think, of course, everybody feels somewhat alienated. It's one of the conditions of modern society that we live in. And, uh, you know, I certainly feel that way, but I'm much less that way than he is. Hmm. And so I think he's much gloomier uh, than I am, um, much, much gloomier than I am. I think he's deeply pessimistic um, about the future. That's helpful, I think. Yeah, because I, I know when Rod uh, when Rod's book kind of made made the rounds. I mean, yeah, that that was creating quite a stir. But I, I like what you had said earlier too that it didn't quite have the the catch with with evangelicals. Um, so I, I got I to learn from his yet. mistakes, as I told him. I yeah. said, Rod, I got the I got to learn from what happened to you, and I saw how people criticized you, and so I. You know, my book has no Catholic or Orthodox imagery in it. So I, I dispense with the monastery. He also, I think, had way too many suggestions. I think there were like 35 suggestions. Just, you could do this, yeah. you could do this, you could do this. And so I, I still have a lot. Don't believe me, I've got a lot. But I tried to have fewer points than he had. <clears throat> and then I did a whole, an entire section on mission because people kept saying, like, he, he wants to say head for the hills and give up on the Great Commission, which he did not actually say. But I wanted to make sure nobody could ever say that I was suggesting that. So, uh, you know, I got to emphasize some some things a little differently because I saw what happened to him. There's a couple of questions here that kind of tag off of that, you know, um, so you talk about suggestions. But, um, you know, this what would be some specific moves for the CRC in order to go from relevance transformationalist to countercultural? Or what would be some of the specific things from what you know of the CRC that you could say, hey, these are the things that you should lean on? And we talked about institutions earlier. Maybe you could talk a little more of that too. But what kind of specific moves do you think that we that would be good for us in the CRC to consider? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that, that you know the CRC has is its um, uh, you know the confessions, and so I think doubling down on the confessions in a sense is is good. I mean, if you if you look at um, you know all the research that's been done, like you know the, you know they did the, the Christian Smith research about moralistic therapeutic deism, mm -hmm. like kind of most teenagers like 
only have the vaguest sense of of God at all. And you always see these surveys that people don't know the basics of Christianity. Now, I think it's been the case that sort of the masses have never been well catechized. Mm. Uh, I think that's basically always been the case. But we've got these confessions and we've got these catechisms. Do, do our people actually like know them? Do we actually like, you know, I think that's that's one. Um, I think sticking to sort of, tra you know, tra very tra more traditional is going to seem better. I think that's why um, people want to have the Latin mass. You know, they're looking for something that seems older and more rooted. And so I think it's hard to just take old things out of the, you know, dust, you know, the dusty closet there and dust them off and like try to like adopt them. It's kind of LARPing. But to the extent that you definitely have sort of like living traditions and things that are distinctive to what you guys do, um, I would certainly stick with those. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and try to just, because it gives you a sense of continuity, you know, um, you know, with, with the past. Um, and that's why things like hymns, the you know, I mean, I don't know exactly what your hymnal has in it. Um, but a lot of the things about the, the traditional English language hymns, is it something that like all generations can sing together that they can all know. And if you're trying to use a lot of contemporary music and, um, you know, you're trying to have like a, you know, a modern band and, you know, things like that, you know, it, that's more, that's a little more relevant. So, so some of it's, some of it's style issues um, there. Um, I think some of it, um, you know, I've been thinking about this, like how do you, how do you create a moral economy in your church that's distinct from the moral economy of the world? And so some of it is, I mean, like, I think we should be people who reject vice and so, um, no, no porn, no gambling, no smoking pot, right? No profanity and no tattoos. Those are my five points. And if I got some people on here that have a tattoo or something like that, you know, it's like, there's nothing in your confessions that prohibits tattoos. I, I do know, probably, I, I know that. So it's like, it's not a legalism, but it's just like, that's not who we are. As um, <clears throat> my, my number one uh, best favorite line of all time from Mark Driscoll, if you remember him. Yeah, sure. Uh, I've criticized him a lot, but he had this great line. Some things aren't sinful. They're just dumb. And, you know, sitting there on your phone gambling during the Super Bowl falls into that category. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Exactly. So we need to reject things that are unprofitable. And I think just, uh, so I think there's like the vice angle. I think we need to find a way to have a community where marriage with children remains the norm and we're not just filling up the pews with singles and trying to accommodate that. How can we create a world in which people can get married and stay married? Mm. Right. And where, you know, all of these things like to, to repair our own sexual economy, which I think is critically important. Um, so I think so those are the sorts of things I would be thinking about. You know, interesting, a comment that was made earlier or a question was, you know, does the CRC need to develop a code of conduct in addition to its confessional identity? And you just basically answered that question there. I mean, yep. you know, there needs to be sort of a, a a way we live as CRC people. Right. 
And I think a lot of it is, is like, it's not, if you have to write it down, when you start writing things down, that's when you know you got a problem, mm-hmm. you know, because if you went back, right, in the old thing, what would they say? A gentleman's word was his bond. Right. You could make a handshake deal with someone because we had a culture where people honored their word, right? We had these cultures where that happened. And if you, so I think a code of conduct is important, but it's not a code in like the written code. It's the code in the culture. It's a cultural code. This is who we are and how we live together. This is what we do. It's not a legalistic um, thing, you know, because as you know, people always try to get legalistic around these confessions and like, well, what does this really mean here? Is this that? And, you know, so I think part of it is like, you know, once, uh, you, you know, it's, it's just a lot of those things. I think we you know once you, it's the unwritten rules that are the most important, the unwritten code of conduct that nevertheless truly governs sort of like the old, it was the old gentleman's code that we used to prevail in upper-class America. And, you know, if you violated that code, there would be social consequences, um, right? If you were a cheater, you would rapidly find yourself ostracized. In fact, you can see, if you read the books of, um, uh, what's her name? Is it is Edith Wharton, is she the one? Wrote Age of Innocence. Yep. Like an age in innocence, it's like, you know, if your company collapses in a scandal, you are permanently exiled from society. No questions asked. So it's like, if you you do anything shady like that, it's like there's no mulligans on that. And so you can start to see this sort of like way, their sort of code of manners. And I think where we, uh, I don't know how the CRC is, but certainly sort of mainstream evangelicalism struggles with anything that they can't directly tie to a Bible verse. You know, it's like, well, you know, if the if it's not this particular proof text, then I can't then I can't go to it. But I do think there's a sense in which, um, you know, having a way of life that is distinct for the world. You know, and I, one of the examples I give in the book is the 19th century Quakers in England. Yeah. Now the Quakers were troublemakers. Okay, so they, they that, that I don't I, I don't I, uh, endorse that part of it. But you know the Quakers really had a code of conduct and, and, a, and a moral ethical code by which they lived. And this was in an era before we had like any regulation of business, any pure food and drug acts, any anything. And people like to do do business with Quaker businessmen because they're like, they're not going to steal from me. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they're going to, you know, they're not going to defraud me. And um, a great article, I quote from a great article in the London Review of Books about Cadbury Chocolate, which was a, a Quaker company. And the way that they treated their workers was better than everyone else. The other chocolate companies put, you know, iron filings and sawdust into their chocolate as like fillers and like, they never did that. They're like, we're not doing that. That's not who we are. And so even the people who really probably hated the Quakers preferred to do business with the Quakers. Guess who you are? I mean, you see this up in Northern Indiana all the time. People love to hire the Amish. Right. Not because they believe anything the Amish believe, but because these guys are not going to show up drunk. They're going to show up. They're not going to be drunk. They're going to work hard all day. They're going to deliver a good product. Right. Like, 
what's not to love about these guys? They're not going to sue me. You know, it's like, there's like a whole list of good reasons to hire the Amish. And, you know, you see those practices and that's why the Amish are doing so well. That's why the Mormons have done so well. You know, the Mormons have a real culture that is healthy. And so, um, so I think those kind of anthropological aspects of our life are critical. I think this, this is helpful. I mean, this is obviously provocative in the way we think about who we are as a denomination and where we've come from, because we've had much of that over the course of our history, uh, much of that. And, and I think a bit of this is baby in the bathwater type of thing. You know, everything gets kind of tossed out. You're trying to move on, trying to be relevant to our, to our culture. Um, uh, you know, we're kind of coming up to the, the, well, we're just over the end of the hour here, but um, one more question here. Um, uh, it says, there's a contingent of the CRC who would fundamentally disagree with, this is who we are understanding of what our past few synods have articulated. Um, so any advice on how to graciously help those, those folks move out of denial and onto an off-ramp? Yeah, I mean, I think if there are people who want to compromise on, you know, core aspects of, you know, the confessions, and that's just an unbridgeable gap. And, uh, you know, uh, Tim Keller wrote a, one, the last thing, basically the last thing he wrote before he died was a document called something like the decline and renewal of the American church. Mm. And he laid out his strategy and one of his points of view was basically these hard, he doesn't call them hardcore culture war types. That's my phrase for him. He calls them fundamentalist. He's like, we just got to divide from those people. He calls it divide with tears. He's like, we shouldn't be happy about it, but we got to divide from those people because we fundamentally don't agree anymore. And so there is something there. Um, one thing I would say is, uh, you know, make it, uh, I would be thinking, how do you make it attractive to people to leave? You know, I mean, if you look at like how mainline denominations treat congregations or parts of their uh, system that want to leave, they're typically extraordinary. I shouldn't say typically. They're sometimes extraordinarily vindictive. Mm. Um, you know, we'll, they'll try everything to take your property away from you. I mean, like the worst behaviors. I mean, they really are utterly vindictive and there's no reason to behave like that, you know, so make it easy, be gracious, you know, if people want to leave, you know, and, um, you know, and uh, the example I would give, I have no idea if it's real, if this is a real thing or not. It's a, it's a hypothetical example. Let's just say, you know, if you're the child of a member of a CRC church, you get a discount at Calvin University, you know? Let them have the discount if they want to send their kids, if they leave the CRC. Like if you were formerly, make it apply to churches that were formerly in the CRC. You know, don't try to like, you know, you know, you got to give, give, give them, a, like, you know, give them a, you know, a, a, a space saving. And, you know, you can still say, look, you know, we still love you. We don't hate you. We just don't, we're just in a place where we're, we have a disagreement and like Paul and, you know, Paul and Barnabas, we can't go on together. Um, and who knows, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they would, you know, much like with uh, Mark, you know, maybe he'll come back. <laughs> you know, there'll be some records that you don't know. 
You don't know. But I, I think like not being vindictive and making it as easy as possible for people to, as Mitt Romney put it in 2012, self-deport uh, is, is the best approach. Yeah. I think one of the heart desires, and I think this is the right heart desire, talk about with tears, like Tim Keller said, you know, we, um, we, we would love to have everybody stay in the family, right? You know, the CRC is, is very much family oriented, but we can't stay in like this when we're, when we're in fundamental disagreement of the confessions and, you know, going forward. So, yeah, I, I think that whole, that whole concept of gracious separation, number one, we have to come to the, the realization that there is going to be separation. And I think that's one of the tough things that many people have had a hard time getting their arms around is that we're not all going to stay together. And, um, but being gracious and generous in that separation. Appreciate that sure. thought. Hey, anybody yeah. have any last questions at all for? Yeah. And the other thing is like, you know, and one, one, one thing I would put in there, somebody said, said that he put all of Keller's articles into one documents. Yes. That was a four parter. He actually himself put it into one document and has a lot of expanded material in it. So be oh. sure to Google for the version that's all one combined PDF because it has a bunch of new stuff in it. Okay. Yeah. If anybody finds that, send us the link. We'll share that with everybody. Mm -hmm. It's in the Zoom here. Good. Thank you for that. Good. Hey, thank you so much, Aaron. Appreciate your time. No, thank you. I hope you guys, uh, I hope you guys found it useful. Again, it's not like, I don't have like, I never tell people, here's what you got to do because- you guys are the ones that, have, you know, you have the skin, I don't have skin in the game, right? I'm going to get off this thing. And then, you know, uh, I attend a Presbyterian church. So I'm second off. So I was supposed to say, I like to give ideas and thinking, but ultimately you guys have to navigate, you know, what is right for you because you have the knowledge of it and you have the skin in the game that, you know, I don't have. So I just try to give you tools to help make sense of the world and then ideas that you can kind of evaluate as to their applicability or not. And maybe some of the why I said doesn't apply. Well, that's exactly what we're looking for. I mean, yeah. it's it's good to get a view of of the world from out. You know, we 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 talk. We can be very myopic. We can think about ourselves, and we're so caught up in the conversations that we have here. So, I've really appreciated. I think the way you framed the church, the way you framed even the last you know fifty years of history, sixty years of history. You know, I think that's been helpful to even understand where we are and 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 how how that has affected our own denomination and how it's got, how we've gotten to this place where we are today. And so I think that that's very helpful to us. And thank you for your time and for spending time with us. Um, if you're in Michigan, Aaron's going to be up in East Lansing in what, two, three weeks. I don't know exactly when it is. It's, it's March eight or nine or somewhere okay. right around there. Uh, but the, the Philadelphia conference on reform theology will be, at University Reformed Church in East Lansing. And Aaron is going to be, I think you have the first address, don't you, of the of the Yeah, event? I think I got to give, give two. So well, you kick it probably off. Heard, so. You've probably heard part of what I'm going to give. That's today. Great. It'll have to be longer than that because I think I have like two two hour long slots. I don't know what I'm going to say yet. I got to <laughs> stretch it out, right? But no, it's always a great conference. And um, I know you're going to be, you're going to be speaking with some, some great folks. So that'll be a, that'll be an interesting uh, and a well worthwhile conference, I think too. So, but thank you. And Hey, blessings on your work and um, the continued work and, and for the work of Jesus Christ. So. Well, thanks for having me.